Today in our podcast series on divestment from fossil fuels, I welcome Jeremy Burke, who has been involved in the green finance uh, sector for over a decade now, um, working on the question of um, green finance and responsible and sustainable investment. Uh, welcome, Jeremy Burke. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thank you for being here. Um, we would like to discuss uh, with you today a little bit um, the other side of the divestment. Um, we have now talked a lot about how to withdraw capital from fossil fuel industries mainly. But then, of course, the question arises, where do we invest that money in? What happens with that money? And how can we not only not do bad things with the money, but do actually good things, green things with the money? Um, so my first question would be to you in a very generic way. <clears throat> why is it important how money is invested and um, um, which kind of situation are we in right now um, concerning green finance? Now, I think it's worth saying up front that the success of the divestment campaign has been pivotal in making green finance rise to the fore of deliberations uh, across the world. And we shouldn't underestimate what campaigners and all of your listeners have been doing. So my personal thanks for that. We actually stand at a really interesting point on, on green finance. We've moved away from people and, and investors thinking that green is good simply because it is green. And we've moved into a space where green is good because you can get decent returns out of it and people can be investing their pensions, their, their life savings into green assets and green infrastructure so that they get a reasonable and sensible financial return as well as the green investment return, regards the green returns that we all need for the environment. So what we've seen over the last few years is a huge change in the investment community around green driven by both the divestment movement and people wanting green investments. They want green investments because they want their money to do good. They no longer want to be involved in sectors that are polluting our environment, damaging our waterways and having a negative impact on humans' health. So we're at a really interesting phase around what's driving this. In the actual investment community, we're seeing some, some changes at really the high global level, but then also down at the detailed level. We see the G20 taking on a green finance study group last year, co-chaired by the Bank of England and the Chinese government. That was a huge step forward for the G20 because what it did is it took green investment away from being what I would have called and described as a niche industry and it put it in front of finance ministers globally and that's what we need. We need to connect our environment to our financial system. We need our money to, to be working for people and planet, not just for profit. So when that happened we started to see a sea change in attitudes. It came about because uh, the Bank of England governor, Mark Carney, gave a speech about 18 months ago now uh, talking about breaking the tragedy of the horizon, talking about why our current business cycle, our current regulatory approach is too short term, but actually the challenges around climate change require us to take a long term view. And those within the divestment movement are obviously well aware of this, but it's worth emphasising that this is a message now being received globally. And then we see the growth of things like green bonds going from, from nothing to nearly 100 billion last year. Huge changes and, and really important. And I think we stand at a, a pivotal moment where we can actually see the finance system becoming green quite quickly. That's very interesting and very motivating to hear. I have one question that um, arose to me several times um, already. And you also mentioned now that um, also many investors get better returns when they invest in green um, assets. Um, then 
maybe a naive question, but it still rises to me. Um, why do people still invest in old um, uh, coal, oil and gas uh, assets if they, um, in, you know, usually you would think the incentive is always to get the best return. Um, so if you can better get better returns um, with, a, um, with green assets, uh, why do people still invest in coal, oil and gas? I think what we have to understand when we look at the finance system is, is the power of habit and the power of behaviour. So the individuals who are making these investment decisions are, are people going to work, doing their jobs. Uh, often they're doing jobs they've done for quite a long time. Their firms and their organisation have been involved in certain sectors for a long time. It's the way they've done business. In certain instances, it's the way they've always done business. Mm -hmm. And the challenge uh, to move away from that is actually quite strong. Uh, you think about individuals, I think, are, are more likely to pass away than change who they bank with. So we're talking about a, a big system with lots of people involved whose, whose livelihoods depend on their firm making money and them being successful. Now, What we're saying is that you're not looking at the risks properly. You're not looking at the risks to um, the environment clearly and to our health as, as humans on, on this planet, this one planet we have. And you're not looking at what the risks are to you financially. And mm -hmm. I think what we've seen is while these cases have been, have been strongly made, particularly over the last six or seven years around stranded assets, it's really been the demise in coal stocks and the demise in um, some of the fossil fuel uh, energy companies in Europe who have lost a lot of shareholder value. So now you're seeing these arguments around uh, what I would say are kind of environmental or moral reasons that our money, money should be used to do good, combining with hard evidence around people losing money mm. um, in, the, in the kind of status quo and the standard way of doing things, combining really, really powerfully. And now we move from those arguments around moral responsibility into a, a much more enlightened view around fiduciary responsibility. Um, and so I think you, you touch on the other key point that this is about managing risk over the long term. So a lot of the, the stock market is based on short-term returns and often those short-term returns have been um, at the cost of, of long-term environmental returns. We can, we can drill oil now and we can explore for coal now and we won't need to worry because those, those challenges and those risks exist further down the line. In actual fact, what we're seeing is that people are starting to, to take up the challenge from Governor Carney from the Bank of England and saying, well, actually, if this possesses a long-term risk to my financial returns, I need to factor that in now and I need to change my decision now. And what green investment offers is a lower long-term risk as well as environmental benefits. So a really powerful combination for investors. And is that also a problem of lawmaking? Um, because um, I don't know how the situation is where you have worked, um, but from a German background where I'm from, um, we often have the problem that uh, managers, asset managers and so on, they first of all have to um, maximize the profit of them and then also have to maximize sort of the short-term profit. Um, and the companies, um, they uh, every three months, they have to come out with their numbers. So it's very short-term oriented, um, but also by, by lawmaking, because they, they sort of, um, <clears throat> they're obliged um, to orient themselves on this, um, you know, um, maximizing short-term profit. So is there also, on a, maybe also on a coordinated international level, um, a necessity to maybe change that laws into... Um, into making it more 
or in, into letting uh, investors look more on the long-term uh, perspective? So there's two angles to this. There's the kind of current law and what can be achieved with the, the laws as they stand. And then there's what are the potential for regulatory changes. And I think it's a, a really important point that we need to be focusing on. Under current law, you, you draw out, uh, I think, quite succinctly the focus on short-term returns. But actually, we're seeing globally um, a push to to really enhance the, the way people look at their fiduciary responsibilities around long-term risk and long-term returns. So we've seen a number of cases where, under current law, uh, companies are required to disclose their material risks. And a lot of companies haven't been disclosing material risks around climate change and asset stranding. Mm. So we're starting to see campaigners and we're starting to see investors really pushing for greater disclosure in line with current legislation. And we've seen legal cases coming out around fiduciary responsibility saying that boards and, and trustees need to understand that climate and environmental risks are potentially material for their business. And that's a big change. And that can be done under, under current law. But there are opportunities to go further. And one of those opportunities is around uh, climate-related financial disclosure. Yeah. So off the back of the Governor Carney speech, we saw the Bloomberg Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. It released its draft report in December, and it was very clear that we now need to move initially in a voluntary capacity, and this is about getting companies and investors to, to take forward transparency and disclose what the risks and, and for certain businesses, the opportunities that a two-degree world requires. And one of the key parts of that report, and then their final report will come out in the middle of the year, is around scenario analysis. Mm -hmm. So if we move towards a, a two-degree world, what are the physical risks to your business? So what will happen if, if we start getting the climate impacts that we have forecast and predicted? And then also the transition risk. What, what is the risk of regulatory change to your business? What is the risk of asset stranding or having to retrofit your assets to reduce your pollution? And that's a real opportunity to push for um, new laws and new laws which require greater transparency and require businesses to provide the information that investors want and investors are demanding. We saw the, the French government take the lead in 2015 around this and for the first time this year we will see uh, disclosures in France which are very similar to, to some of the recommendations that the Bloomberg Task Force came up with. So I think there's a huge opportunity to, to shine a bit of light on this. I mean, we, we always say that sunlight is the best disinfectant I think with a bit of sunlight, we will start disinfecting. <laughs> Very good. So you would say um, this is like also transparency and disclosure is really one of the hurdles yet. Um, I, I don't know. I've read um, once that there are over 400 um, reportings, different reporting standards on green, uh, green financing and so on. Um, so... Is it really a problem or is it also sort of an excuse by some investors that they say, ah, we don't have enough information, so we better keep out of it, um, while maybe in other sectors the uh, transparency isn't much better? I think what we'll see through both the, the Bloomberg Task Force recommendations and also CDP Worldwide, which I'm a trustee at, is we're starting to see there's no space to hide anymore, that across every sector there are leaders around transparency and by definition there are therefore people who are not keeping up. And so there is uh, simply a need for investors and people whose money are being invested, whether you're young or old, your money is in these pension funds, your money is in these bank accounts, um, to put pressure on the institutions that, that manage our money, to put pressure on the companies. There, there are no longer any excuses. Yeah. 
Very good. Um, I have one other um, or one other question that several times arose to me that sounds to be a little bit like a contradiction, and maybe you can clarify that a little bit. Um, is that on the one hand there are several huge numbers of how much capital is needed in the next years um, for um, green investment and for making the two degree or aiming at 1.5 degree world possible there I've read numbers of 50 billion then also 90 um, trillion trillion sorry um, and um, but then on the other hand what you hear often from like green banks or funds or so on is that they don't actually have a lack of capital but a lack of projects where to invest it to um, And maybe you could clarify that because when you have on the other on the one hand you have um, a high demand of capital, um, but on the other hand the capital is there but doesn't find the places where to invest to. Um, how does that uh, fit together? I think unfortunately both of those perspectives are right. <laughs> so we do see uh, a lot of banks and organizations who do want to invest struggling to find projects, and we see that for a couple of reasons. The predominant way that banks and project finance is done is large infrastructure style projects. And to date in the renewable space, we've, we've got off to quite a good start and we've certainly seen an acceleration in that through onshore wind, offshore wind and solar. But actually, as we look to green our economies, we're going to need to move away from those large projects and move into more decentralized projects. So I'm talking here about things like putting solar PV on your house. That's a, a very different proposition for financing than doing a large uh, solar PV pro solar project that's, that's not on a rooftop. We're also looking at how do we roll out electric vehicles? What's the, what's the business model for charging infrastructure? How do we get energy efficiency, particularly in those northern hemisphere homes which are quite cold over winter? If you, kind of, if you can insulate houses, we can reduce heat and energy requirements dramatically. And all of this requires different ways of thinking, different business models that um, we are now starting to see some of them developing, but they haven't been there for, for a long time and so they're still needing to be established. So I think we are seeing uh, some of that element around not enough projects to invest. Also, on the longer term, when you talk about how much do we need, well, the reality is we don't know. Um, we're seeing rapid cost reductions, which, which gives us uh, reason to be hopeful. But we're also, we know that a large part of the infrastructure, some estimates at, at the, the $90 trillion dollars by 2030 that you mentioned, broadly over half of that will need to be in developed and emerging economies. So these are places where um, perhaps the financial system is a different structure to, to the more Western financial system. Perhaps it's, uh, it's underdeveloped and there simply aren't the, the capacity um, elements to get these projects done because these are always going to have local impacts. You need to think about um, human rights elements and you need to take this um, community engagement really, really seriously. So while you see banks often in uh, developed countries with funding to spend but projects being needed in emerging economies there are issues there and, and that's going to take some time to work through okay that makes sense um one other uh, thing that often comes up in this discussion um are is the question of green bonds um you mentioned it already before um i, I would like to ask you to elaborate maybe a little bit on it maybe first explain to our listeners what exactly it is or more or less what it is um, but then also there's some controversy about it, um, like how to define green bonds. What is a green bond? For example, the, the, the Polish government has issued a green bond, which also then includes kind of clean co 
goal project, which um, is uh, definitely questionable. Um, so um, maybe you could give us a glimpse on this discussion on green bonds. Yeah, so green bonds are kind of an area that's grown rapidly over the last five years, from virtually nothing to, uh, I mentioned, nearly 100 billion last year. Yeah. And what they are is, is a, a regular bond instrument. So someone has borrowed money and against that they've given a promise to repay that over a certain period. So a bond can be short term, uh, maybe one, three, five years, or you might even extend it out to a longer term bond, a 15, 20 year period. And and these can be issued by projects. So you can have what's called a, a project bond where you're taking the risk of one project being successful. The second option is it could be a corporate bond. So you might have um, a developer, a project developer who's got a series of projects that they want to borrow money against, or they might just want to fund their operations. It could be a, a wind farm manufacturer, sorry, a wind turbine manufacturer, a solar manufacturer. And then you can have bank or government green bonds. So this is where banks and governments who borrow in um, the everyday course of events actually mandate that the funds they're borrowing will only be used for green projects. So the use of projects are defined solely for green purposes. And what this allows is that investors can make an informed choice around what their money is used for. So we're now seeing um, both investors who have always invested with these companies, so it's kind of um, large companies or multilateral banks like uh, the European Investment Bank's a very strong issuer in this space. Um, and now sovereign governments, you mentioned Poland, but there's been um, other sovereign government issues and particularly uh, the French government was, was leading the way where with a multi-billion uh, euro bond. So we're starting to see that this has taken off from what was a very small niche area and is rapidly growing. And the reason this is important is that it both directs capital to the projects that we all want to see happening, it's very specific around that, but it also sends a message that investors really want to back this, that they will invest in you as an institution or a government uh, if you're going to do these projects. And that allows you to get different investors, it allows you to diversify who you're getting your funding from, and if there's more demand it can ultimately bring down the cost of funding. So hugely positive. I think the issue around um, what is green and defining green is, is a difficult one because um, putting aside the, the, the clean coal debate, but what we have with climate change is there are geographical issues with, with what is green and there are issues over time, so temporal issues. So something that is, say, uh, if you like to contrast an energy efficiency project in Germany versus an energy efficiency project in India. Well, Germany's uh, quite an energy efficient um, country on relative terms. India or, or some other countries are, are not going to be so. So you really have to look at what's green in a country at a point in time. And I think over time it's really interesting because we want to prevent asset stranding. We don't want people investing now um, thinking their assets are going to be green for the entire life of the asset and then putting at risk that capital in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Yeah. So again, I think it comes back to transparency. Yeah. We need to know exactly what these um, bonds are being issued for, what the use of proceeds is, and then investors can think a little bit and they can make a decision, well, actually, I, I don't agree. That, that for me is not green. I'm not going to buy it. Okay. And then uh, you mentioned an interesting point also, and with this I, was, I would like to um, close the series, uh, the podcast for today. Um, but many people actually from time to time approach us and ask, okay, 
what can I do? What's what's my role? Where should I invest my money? And um, I'm sure that you cannot make some direct recommendations where should people uh, invest their money. Um, but maybe uh, some general tips for for people who would who have their capital at some bank where they have it for decades already, and would now like um, to shift it to some some green more green investment. What what could you recommend to them? Where should they look out for? What should they um, what should they think about to do? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. I mean, I think obviously joining campaigns like the divestment campaign is a great first step. I think they need to find out what their, their current investments are doing. So actually, before you, before you move your money, um, put pressure on your current institution, ask the questions, because even if you decide that it is time for you to move, By giving your voice to your current institution, they, they know that people are watching, they know that people are taking action. So I think there's a really important role to, to be asking these questions of, of big institutions that most people bank with already. And then I think if you are looking to move um, and you do make that decision, be clear with the, the people you're leaving and the people you're going to on why you're doing it. Because I think as more people start doing this, there's going to be a huge amount of competition in the market to create new products, to appeal to, if you like, the, the, those younger people who want their money invested for the long time, but also, really importantly, retirees who, who don't want their pensions funded by dirty fossil fuels. They want their pensions to be funded by something that's going to give a good future for their grandchildren. They want healthy outcomes for their families. So what we can do with our, our pressure and by moving our money is really make sure that the people we're moving to know that we move to them for a reason and that we're going to keep watching them. Thank you very much, uh, Jeremy Burke. That was very interesting, I found. Uh, thank you very much for being here. I have um, one last um, uh, recommendation for our listeners. Um, that is, we have just um, now um, published a new brochure on exactly that topic. It's called The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. Uh, Europe's big polluters and how to divest from them. Um, it uh, shows you which companies in Europe are responsible for the worst pollution um, and how you can make your money not funding these companies and go um, to banks um, or funds uh, that do it better. Then there are some recommendations in there. You can download that at our website um, www.europeangreens.eu. Thank you very much, Jeremy Burke, again, for being here and um, uh, listen to you next time. Bye-bye.